Well, hello. Maybe good evening, maybe good morning. Uh, what an unusual week we're having. Um, and it's a strange time for sure. And so we thought we would put together a video teaching. Uh, we're going week by week as it relates to our Sunday gatherings. We're somewhat at the mercy of the school district as well as uh, this the general ban on large gatherings. And so uh, we just want to take this moment to reiterate that the church is not a Sunday morning event. It is people. It is not a building. It's relationship. It's uh, people who are... Uh, gathered to Jesus Christ and joined to his mission. And so uh, we're going to go, like I said, week by week as it goes through this season. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're not defined by what's happening around us. We're defined by the story that we are a part of. And so we're going to continue uh, our Story of God series, not disengaged from what's happening in our world, but also not defined by it. We're going to keep being defined by the story that we're a part of. Uh, and so if you've been reading in our series, you have read the end of Deuteronomy and you've read through Joshua and perhaps even the beginning of Judges. And uh, uh, traditionally, this is a, a defined as the history books, Joshua and Judges, the books of history, or in the Hebrew tradition, it is the beginning of what's called the former prophets. But it's all material that relates to Israel in their relationship to the land that God had promised, their exile from it, and return back into it. And so today I want to focus on three realities that Joshua shows us. Uh, the, the realities um, of their relationship to the land and the God they worship there. Now, if you've wrestled at all in your reading through the books of Moses with some of the scenes of violence, uh, then Joshua has for sure raised your, your wrestling because those themes of violence that were in the background in the books of Moses, the Torah, are now in the spotlight. Uh, I remember a time in seventh grade, I was in Mr. Rude's science class, and Joey Little John was kind of the neighborhood bully, and he was picking on a kid in front of me. And I remember being morally incensed, totally outraged, and I thought I had a plan to deal with the injustice that I saw being perpetrated by Joey. So I threw out a warning, knock it off, or whatever words I used, and he clearly shrugged off any uh, moralistic warning that I threw out. And so, in all of my moral outrage and effort to maintain justice, I threw my first punch ever, threw it at a guy who was 50 to 75 pounds above me, so it bounced right off him, hurt me way more than it hurt him. And I remember Joey turning around in his seat, and he just punched me square in the nose, knocked me out of the chair, and all I had were just tears rolling down my eyes. And my moral outrage melted into shame and embarrassment as both of us marched off to the principal's office. You see, what had happened was I had adopted an ends justify the means kind of mentality. I assumed a moral high ground without actually possessing it. And a lot of readers of the Bible will come to a book like Joshua, and they'll see God command the destruction of cities and peoples, and they'll see 
essentially a, a group of people, Israel, acting in their minds like a moral middle schooler throwing punches at the Joey Little Johns of the land of Canaan. And eventually this people will grow up and accept the teaching of Jesus to love enemies and turn the other cheek and be the blessed peacemakers. And ultimately, this is uh, to look at a tension between the Old Testament and the New Testament and many times find a problem with it rather than seeing it as a tension. So it becomes a problem to fix rather than a tension to walk. As if these these texts are inconsistent or incompatible. And once we begin to assume that these the relationship between the God of the Old Testament and Christ of the New Testament are incompatible, we begin to no longer allow the Bible to have its authority in our lives, uh, as if we cannot accept the, the God that's being portrayed there. And so we just have to face that, uh, that, that tension that's there, that, that God would command Israel to use violence in their possession of the land. And so we're going to walk through that tension. But before we do today, I, I just want to throw out a thought. And that is a thought that we, we need to be intellectually consistent and morally consistent to see ourselves in our own historical moment, to see our own anxieties and our own ways of being co-opted by a larger culture. It's easy to look at an ancient text and say, oh, that's so barbaric that God would command war in this context, that he would sanction this violence in any way, as if what's being portrayed is an abusive father who flies off the handle, he's capricious. Yet what's interesting to me, at least, is to look at an ancient text and say, that's barbaric. We also need to be morally consistent and refuse any apathy to what happens around us. And, and to recognize that half a million at best, half a million babies are aborted in our own country uh, throughout every calendar year. And so to look at an ancient text and go, that's barbaric, but be turned completely apathetic to what happens around us as if that's just ethically complicated is I think at best morally inconsistent. All I'm saying here is let's be aware of our own biases as we engage in ancient text. And to say, uh, let's not turn aside from the violation of peace that we see in our own city, our own nation, and our globe, and the warfare that creates refugees and our hardness to many of them and their plight. Let's just be morally consistent as we engage a text like this. So three things this morning that I want to show you in Joshua. The first is God's unwavering commitment to his promise. What's happening in this text is we're seeing God fulfill a story that he's already started. Remember, Joshua is a continuation of the story we've been reading so far. Um, and so just like Genesis, God puts a man in a garden to keep it and take care of it so that he, he can be present with his people. But all the nations rebel against God and they turn from him. And all humanity buys the lie that God's somehow holding out on us so we'd be better off defining good and evil for ourselves. And yet God graciously calls one family out of all the nations who will turn from the gods of the nations and follow Yahweh loyalty. And they're given a land and a promise. And that family will be like a new Adam, a new humanity to live in the new 
Edenic kind of land with God's presence right at the center. And they're to keep Torah just the same way Adam was to keep the garden. Everything that's happening in Joshua is a reiteration that God's presence is going with his people and that he's to dwell with them in a new Eden and there to be his new humanity. And so Joshua opens by saying, That Moses is dead, and now therefore go and arise, move across this Jordan River, you and all the people, to the land that I am going to give them, to the people of Israel. And he says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Remember, this is a function of God's grace and gift. And he says, just as I promised Moses. Again, he says, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. You see, what's happening is God is keeping his word. He's keeping his promise. And so when we look at God's unwavering commitment to his promise, it means a worldview of utter stability. And we live in deeply unstable times. And it's becoming increasingly unstable. If you grew up and you're 40 or younger, there's a good chance your parents aren't together, which creates an instable world that your parents said they loved each other, but not enough to stay together. That creates an instable world emotionally. If you're younger than 30, you haven't experienced a world without the internet. In other words, there's a a continuous manipulation of reality that you absorb day in and day out. That creates an unstable world. If you're younger than 20, you, you have not known a time without totally polarized politics and public anxiety over all kinds of issues. It creates an unstable worldview. What is happening in the book of Joshua is we're seeing God enter a human story to fulfill what he's promised, that he always keeps his word, even if it implicates him in carrying things out in an unideal way, he will keep his word. And he will keep his word to the point that it implicates all of humanity's guilt on himself so that he can keep his word, that he'll suffer at the hands of violent men so that he can keep his word. And so where this lands us in the New Testament is the promise that Paul brings out into the forefront in Philippians chapter 1. That I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. What I want to offer you in Joshua is that the entire story is a story of God doing what he said he'd do. He promised something and he's giving what he promised to people who don't deserve it and who will not actually steward what he gives him, what he gives them. And so this is something we, we, we see, that, that God is a keeper of his word, and it creates a stable worldview for those of us who in a deeply unstable world. The, the second thing I want to show you this morning in the text of Joshua, or the storyline of Joshua, is that God has an uncompromising approach to evil. His approach to evil is not to sweep it under the rug or to ignore it or to rename it. But he actually is uncompromising in his approach to evicting evil out of his good world. Evil always works as a parasite on the good. 
It isn't a thing in itself, St. Augustine said, but it actually functions parasitically, that it will always distort and disorder the good. And so for God to dwell with his people in a good land, he has to deal with evil so it doesn't corrupt their experience of him and the flourishing that he wants them to have in the land. And so he evicts evil. Now, as we move into this part of the story where we see Joshua leading military campaigns against the people in the land, the question arises in our hearts, is God uh, committing genocide? Is that what's happening here? And I don't want to completely relieve the tension because I believe the tension somewhat left present for us in the text, but we at least need to know what is happening in the text. That God is not actually this caricature of an abusive father who, who commits genocide. What's actually happening in the text is important for us to know. That, that first of all, this is about eviction of evil. This is divine judgment on evil being perpetrated by humans. Now, in Genesis 15, when Abraham is promised this land, God says that it's not yet time for him to possess it because the sin of the Amorites, which is another name for the people who live in this land, has not reached its completion. In other words, that God anticipates the evil reaching some kind of boiling point at which he will have to evict it from the land. And so these are morally corrupt people. Leviticus 18 talks about how corrupt their practices are sexually. And then in chapter... um, See, Deuteronomy 12, we recognize that this group of people practices child sacrifice uh, in prolific proportions. So this is not a people who are peaceable, but who are actually working evil and hurting the vulnerable. And it's a bad situation. So on one hand, this is judgment. On another hand, Canaanites or Amorites, is, it's not a clan, it's not an ethnic group. It's a term for a people who live in a vicinity. And so this is not an ethnic cleansing. The other piece of information that's really important here is that the language Joshua uses when he talks about utter destruction is meant to be viewed hyperbolically. Does that mean you can't trust the Bible that it's somehow uh, not actually using language that's dependable? Well, there's clues in the text to help us understand that this is hyperbolic language. On one hand, this is the way ancient kings talked about their wars. They used hyperbolic language to say we utterly won. In fact, there's an ancient king who subjected Israel and said, Israel's seed is no more, which is clearly hyperbolic language because Israel is still around. And so, When Joshua reports these utter destructions and these total victories, what he's saying is, our victory was huge. It was the best victory. We really, really won. And so it's a hyperbolic way of talking about what had happened. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 commands the destruction of people and then verses later talks about how you're to relate to the people in the land and how you're to avoid their gods. And so, uh, as well, Joshua 10 describes the destruction of some of these cities. And chapters later, in chapter 15, they're talking about the relationship between Israel and the people in the land. And so, it's clearly not utter destruction. But it is hyperbolic language to describe a military victory. 
And then that brings us to the third reality that I want to highlight in this point, and that's that uh, this was one unique moment in history. This is not God's blanket statement to be at war with the nations always, but it is one generation that was targeting military fortified outposts. And it was this context in which Israel was exercising God's unique judgment that will one day come on all. The the judgment against evil was being uh, announced especially early, or perhaps at the right time, but early for all humanity, but in this case, uh, at the right time for this group of people, and it was one generation. Another really weird fact that gets involved in this story is the report of the spies at the, uh, in Numbers 13. When they come to the land, they come back and report that the Nephilim are still in the land. This takes us back to Genesis 6. The group of people who are the, the result of the sons of God mating with the son, daughters of women, that what we're to take away is that there's some kind of inhuman bloodline uh, that results in giants in the land. And it freaked out the spies, and they said, we don't want to go into the land. And so part of the battle sequences in Joshua are targeting cities that are mentioned to have what the Bible refers to as the Nephilim. And so on one hand, it seems to be God's judgment against uh, a type of humanity that was never meant to be, a distorted human that was associated with the false gods worshipped by the nations. And so there's some bigger cosmic storyline happening here, and it's so weird to our modern ears, but it's also just what's in your Bible. And so this, uh, this storyline of God's judgment, what do we do with it? it? It seems like at best we need to understand that there's a tension that, we can't, that can't go away, um, but that God has committed himself to humans in such a way that he will interact in ways that are not ideal. We know that violence wasn't meant to be a part of the beginning and it won't be a part of the end, but it is somehow still a part of the middle of the story. The world's violent and it's broken, but the uses of violence in this case are uncompromising battle against evil in a land that God is intending to dwell in with his people. And so that reality that that God will evict evil for the sake of good, it has to be dealt with. Um, While this may not be immediately emotionally fulfilling or satisfying to some, what I hope we understand here is that God is evicting evil. And um, He can remove us if He wants to. Simply put, God does not answer to the creature because He is the Creator. Another dimension of this story is that it's historical narrative describing what happened. It's not a moral roadmap for how to deal with political issues in our day. Uh, It reports how God fulfilled his promise for a time uh, with limited commands to fight against a limited group of people. And it's not a text meant in any way to legitimize the use of violence or force to promote God's glory. That would be a misappropriation of the text because Jesus' commands to his followers are to be a people who make peace. Romans 13 says that the sword is given to the state to yield for the sake of peace, Um, but not to the church. The church is told to, as much as depends on ourselves, to live at peace with all. And so, um, also, while we're not meant to 
allegorize Joshua. These were real acts committed in real history. Uh, the, the thing that I do want us to take away is a principle that God deals with evil and he's ruthless and uncompromising in his eviction of it. And in principle, we need to be just as ruthless in evicting evil from our own lives. That we would look at the obstacles to God's glory and dwelling in our lives and be just as ruthless with it. And as Paul says in Romans 13, we're to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're to put on the Lord Jesus instead. So anything in our life that is luring us away from single-hearted devotion to Christ is meant to be evicted. We're to look inward after a story like Joshua and ask the question, where am I being uh, compromised? And I need to deal with it and evict it. You see, the New Testament continues the warfare theme, that God is a warrior king, except this time it's not about a battle against flesh and blood. In Ephesians 6, Paul says that the war is against spiritual realities. But we don't fight to gain a victory, we fight from a victory. Paul's language is to stand firm in Christ, to be rooted in the good news and live out who you are, where you are. That the point is to stand, not to go on the offensive, but to stand firm in the reality of who you are in Christ. To announce victory to your own shame and guilt. To announce victory over sin and live that out. And the third reality, the third point I want to make this morning or this evening, whenever you're watching it, is that God's ultimate aim is mercy. So His he has this unwavering commitment to keep his word and produces a stable worldview. And he has this uncompromising approach to evil. He wants to evict it for the flourishing of good, but his ultimate aim is mercy, and that's how he gets us there. You see, the portrait of Israel during this conquest narrative is not flattering, just like usual. In fact, the people who are portrayed as most virtuous are actually Canaanites. Outside of Joshua, uh, who also somehow comes through this narrative unscathed. But it's actually the Canaanites themselves who come across as pretty virtuous. There are three mini-stories during the battle sequences. Uh, they're stories of hiding and exposure. And one story that Israelite spies come to Jericho, and a, a prostitute in a, in a fort city somebody who's tied in to the gods of the land and to the, the culture of Canaan, hides the spies for their safety and ultimately exposes her turn of loyalty to Yahweh himself. And then later, there's a group of people called Gibeonites who disguise their identity and say they're, they're beat-up travelers and they want to come under the refuge of Israel. And they later expose their identity after a pact has been made for their protection. And in the middle of these two stories is an Israelite, a guy named Achan, who hides treasure that was meant to be devoted to the Lord in an idolatrous attempt to gain for himself, disobeys God's word, and it becomes exposed after the Israelites are losing a battle because of his sin. And God deals the same judgment on Achan that he deals with all of the nations. And so all of these stories are meant to show us that God's aim is not to 
eradicate evil and people, but to eradicate evil by showing mercy to people so they'll turn from evil and turn to God and His good. And what we see in Rahab, this prostitute, is a woman who has no moral resume whatsoever. And if God were a moralistic mathematician who was just keeping records so that he could destroy those with bad resumes and promote those with good moral resumes, then we would expect her to be annihilated. But in fact, she turns to Yahweh for refuge, and she's loyal to him. And what we see instead is that she actually is saved, just like the Gibeonites. You see, she even marries into the family, and her name comes up later in Matthew chapter 1 as part of the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, because God's ultimate aim is to show mercy on all who turn to Him. How does this work? See, God, who is uncompromising in His approach to evil, and yet ultimately aimed at mercy to people like Rahab and the Gibeonites, people who take refuge in Him, well, He does this because His ultimate eviction of evil will fall on Jesus the true Joshua, the one who has the same name as Joshua, Yeshua. You see, the ultimate victor, the ultimate warrior king is Jesus, but his warrior kingship comes by suffering. He will take on the sword, not by wielding it against his enemies, but by allowing his enemies to wield it against him. That Jesus Christ will empty the power of evil because he'll allow it to do its worst to him and yet he'll come out the other side victorious. Paul says in Colossians 2 that Jesus took the powers, the, the spiritual powers of darkness that we mentioned earlier, and he put them on display, triumphed over them, he made a spectacle of them, he disarmed them by allowing himself to be crucified in the place of wicked humanity. He took all the uncompromising justice of God and allowed it to come down on him. He took the heat, and the whole story leads us to this choice. Where will I find shelter? Where will I take refuge? Will I see that Jesus Christ has taken on evil so it can be evicted from my life and I can take shelter in his refuge? Paul says our lives are hidden in God and Christ. That when we're united to him by faith, we're exposed not for shameful sinners, though we might deserve to be called it, but as holy ones, righteous, because Christ deserves it and he gives what he deserves to us. So whatever you make of the violence in Joshua, we need to understand it in light of the cross, that God would prefer a world with us and because of that will implicate himself and be uh, called evil, he will take on sin, become sin, so that we can become the righteousness of God. That uh, God has come to bring an end to the sword. Uh, One day, ultimately, because he's made peace uh, with all of our alienation that drives us to violence and hatred of our neighbor. He's mended the ultimate violation to bring us home whole to himself. And so we look forward to a new creation in which there will be no more violence, no more war, and no more sickness, no more pandemics, because Jesus Christ has stood under the sword of justice because of his infinite love, and we can join him in his infinite peace. 
These are three things that I hope you'll take away from the message of Joshua today. We'll continue to be the church, living out the peace of Christ as a non-anxious presence in the world because we're defined by this story. Thanks.